The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. All right, so we said that the book of Acts is in many ways a book about advance. We said last week that the book of Acts is about the advance of the message of the kingdom, the good news that Jesus is resurrected, that Jesus was dead and Jesus currently is not dead, and that Jesus has been exalted to God's right hand, ruling over all things, and that all people are therefore invited, all groups and ethnicities and all people groups are invited to enter the kingdom by the blood of Jesus, covered by the forgiving, potent blood of Jesus. The story of Acts is the story of the advance of this message beginning in Jerusalem, where Jesus promises to his, at that time, small band of followers that they're going to receive a divine power from heaven itself, that Jesus is going to send his own spirit to indwell his followers, giving them supernatural power through the Holy Spirit to advance this gospel message, to to advance the story of the resurrected Christ from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And then we see that's exactly what takes place, that Jesus ascends to the Father's right hand, he leaves his followers, and he sends his spirit. And then the Holy Spirit falls on the church, and the church is let loose to to minister and to preach in the power of Jesus' very own spirit. And over the last couple of weeks, we've seen a couple of obstacles that have sort of asserted themselves kind of in the way in the advance of the gospel. In chapter, uh, at the end of uh, chapter 4 and into chapter 5, we saw the very first obstacle, or, or chapter 3 rather, we saw the first obstacle, the first opposition to the advance of the gospel as the religious leaders in Jerusalem clamped down on Peter and John. The next story that we're given is the story of uh, an obstacle or opposition that arises within the church, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We said that Jesus is passionate about the purity of his church, and we see Jesus' judgment on Ananias and Sapphira, and the kingdom advances. Then last week, we saw another obstacle sort of manifest, you know, in, in the attempting to sort of squash and, and, and um, inhibit the advance of the kingdom in the form of the religious leaders arresting the apostles. And again, we see that the kingdom advances. And then tonight, we see that there's another obstacle that surfaces yet again at the advance of the kingdom. In our passage today, we're going to see this obstacle, this problem. But it's met by the Lord's grace with an answer. So we have a problem that's met with an answer. Let's look again at Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. All right, so we're told that the church, the, the kingdom is advancing. The gospel, the word is increasing, and and disciples are being added daily to the number of of, of those who make up the church. And these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, there's a problem. A complaint by the Hellenists, who are the Greek-speaking Jews, arises against the apostles. It's not clear. Maybe it's against the apostles. Maybe it's against the Hebrews. Nevertheless, the complaint arises against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The Greek-speaking Jews who didn't live in and around Jerusalem were complaining that their widows were being overlooked. Now, the daily distribution that's mentioned here was a tradition practiced by synagogues within early Judaism around this time. The church likely adopted this practice for for themselves, and it sounds like this was a practice that they sort of adopted for themselves to make sure that their people were being fed, and there were daily and weekly rhythms that were at play here. But there's a problem. Tensions are sparked along cultural and language lines. The Greek-speaking Jews, many of whom 
who had immigrated into this area, into Jerusalem, their widows were being neglected. Now, what's interesting about this is that uh, one commentator pointed out that oftentimes aging Jewish couples who didn't live in Jerusalem as they got to the end of their life would actually make pilgrimages to set up shop long-term in Jerusalem, to essentially go die in Jerusalem. And because oftentimes... The, uh, in Greek culture, the man was much older than the woman. The man would die sooner, and they, therefore they would leave more widows. There was, a, there was essentially more likely to be widows amongst the Greek-speaking Jews than there were amongst the Hebrew-speaking you know, followers of Christ at this time. We know that widows, based on how often the Scriptures talk about God's passion for the widows, we know that widows were incredibly, incredibly vulnerable during this time. I mean, the husband in this world was the source of their financial stability, and in our world as well. The husband was the source of financial stability. The husband passes away, and it leaves these widows extremely vulnerable. And so there's a complaint that arises. The Greek-speaking widows are being insufficiently cared for. They're being overlooked. They're being neglected in the daily distribution. And you've got to think that in the mind of the apostles, as they, as they hear this complaint, that scriptures begin reverberating, scripture after scripture reverberating in their heart and their mind about God's concern for the widow. There's passages like Deuteronomy chapter 10. I have it on the screen. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Isn't that wonderful news? That God, God is not partial. He's not vulnerable or susceptible to bribes. Verse 18, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now, as God is setting up this nation and he's giving them the law, he wants to instill within them an eye towards the vulnerable. Mentioned here specifically are the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner. And this is rooted in what God has, this kind of concern for the vulnerable is rooted in what God has done for the people of Israel. So the complaint arises in this particular situation, and you've got to think that the apostles think about passages like Deuteronomy 10. God loves the widow. We We can't neglect the widow. God loves the widow. There's also passages like Psalm 68. Sing to God, sing praises to his name, and lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. This psalm celebrates God's very identity as the one who provides protection for the widows. And so again, this passage is probably sparked in their mind. We've we got we to make sure that we're caring for these ladies. And then there's passages like Isaiah 1 verses 16 and 17. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And Isaiah 1, Isaiah is condemning the people of Israel, specifically the leadership of Israel for their unjust actions, and he's saying repentance looks like returning to just things like caring for the fatherless and pleading the widow's cause. So all over the scripture, we're told that God is very concerned about caring for the vulnerable, and in particular, the widow. It's not just the Old Testament, the the New Testament speaks to this as well. 1 Timothy 5, verse 3, Paul says, honor widows who are truly widows. He says it's essential that we honor the widows who are in our midst. And then in James 1, 27, a familiar passage probably for many of us, he says that James writes that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So these widows needed help, and it was vital 
that the apostles responded well to this. There's a real need to be addressed here. But also, there's a, a, a real potential for this to become a much, much bigger issue within the Jerusalem church. All right, think about this. There's one people group, one group of people who are bound together culturally, bound together by their language, bound together by their heritage, who are experiencing one issue and another group who isn't. There is real potential for danger here between these two groups of people. You can see how much trouble this could potentially become when you have fractions like this that begin to grow suspicious of one another. They start to think that the other doesn't have their interest at heart. It has the potential to get really ugly. Now, maybe it starts with grumbling and then a little rumbling and then it becomes complaints and then it becomes teams and then lines are drawn, then there's accusations and then there's resentment. This kind of thing could get really, really nasty. So the, the advance of the kingdom, the, the advance of the gospel, the early church is, is threatened with the obstacle or, or with the potential of, of a real serious fracture being introduced into their community. We could summarize the problem in this way. Needs within the body were being neglected and there was potential for great conflict. That's the problem. Needs within the body were being neglected and there was potential for great conflict. Let's look at verse 2. And the twelve apostles summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So it says that the apostles gather the church together and they make the need known. They say, our task is, is, is word and prayer. It's, it's vital for us to devote ourselves to word and prayer. That's, that's sort of priority number one for the apostles. But serving tables is essential. This needs to take place as well. So we need folks who are dedicated to the serving of tables. They say that, that we need folks that can meet the physical needs of the members of this local expression of the body. Folks who can give their attention and their brain space to give proper consideration to the issues that arise physically within a local church. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, when I think about deacons, my mind defaults to the model of deacons that I saw in the setting that I grew up in. So I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. I know that's not the case for everyone in this room, but I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and the way that deacons essentially functioned in our church was they were a board of trustees to sort of balance out the CEO who was the senior pastor. Or maybe, maybe one way to think about it was they were de facto elders, lay elders, who worked alongside the one staff elder or staff pastor. But that's not actually the setting in which deacons originated. Like, we remember the problem that's presented here. That's sort of the, the, uh, the thing that instigates the, uh, the, the installation of this office. The problem is the neglecting of widows and the daily distribution. And so the office of deacon is one that is of service, not leadership, but of serving tables. The word deacon is literally a transliteration of the word servant in Greek. Now, the New Testament is written in Greek, and the word diakonos is where we get the word deacon, and it means simply servant. And in some ways, what the apostles are establishing here is a, a capital S kind of servant within the church. This is one of the key differences between deacons and elders. The elders aren't explicitly mentioned in this text. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we see that elders lead and elders execute authority in the church. And elders teach the body. We see this in places like 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy chapter 5, Titus chapter 1. Deacons, on the other hand, do neither of these things. Rather, deacons are committed or, or dedicated to serving. And it seems that they are committed to serving particularly the needs within the body that are physical. 
So the apostles invite the church to pick out from among them deacons. Capital S servants. Deacons. And what are the qualifications that the apostles require? This is something that uh, one of the elders pointed out and I thought was a really helpful insight. Jim said this. It's interesting that the, the thing that the, the apostles you know, want to identify when they go about picking out deacons, they, they weren't first looking at comparable, comparable job experience to the office. No, it says that the candidates must be full of the spirit of good repute and wise. In other words, their qualifications, much like elders, are character qualifications, demonstrated through concrete behavior in their lives. Deacons are selected first on the basis of who they are, even before what they can do. Are these people full of the spirit of of good repute? Are they wise? This is not first about their gifts, not first about charisma, not first about merciful sensibilities, not first about being really gifted with spreadsheets. First, they are people of character. This is what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 8. He says, deacons likewise, he's, he's, he's kind of outlined the, the requirement for elder prior to this. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Of course, that doesn't mean perfect. It means uh, consistent. Wives or women likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The office of deacon is, refers, uh, is reserved first for people who are deacons, who are deaconing, who are exhibiting certain qualities and characteristics even before they exhibit the skills to be able to accomplish the tasks. Now, something worth mentioning here that uh, might set our church apart based on your background experience is that our church has women serving the role of deacons. That is different than many of our experiences, I would guess. And again, it was different than the setting that I grew up in. Again, that's probably not true for all of us, but I would suspect that for many of us, that is the case. Now, there's a few reasons for this that led us to this conclusion. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11 begins with the word gune, which can mean either wives or women. Some translate it their wives, but there's no pronoun in the Greek. So, you know, where, where there would, if there was a there there, it, they, would, they would argue that it's implied, that it's, it's referring to the deacon's wives. But the best reading of this is, is in, li- in all likelihood that Paul is just saying women. In other words, female deacons, likewise, like the male deacons, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. One of the primary reasons for this is it seems unlikely that Paul would require things of deacons' wives that he doesn't require of elders' wives. He doesn't give any corresponding exhortation about the the wives of elders. So it seems most likely he's speaking to women who serve in the role of deacon. Additionally, in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, Paul commends Phoebe, and he refers to her as a servant of the church. Paul seems to regard her in official terms, a capital S kind of servant, Phoebe the one who bore the original letter to the Roman church. And remember, a deacon is one who serves. So it's perfectly appropriate for women to serve in the role of deacon. Now, folks often balk at this. I mean, it's one of the things that we got a lot of questions about when we were initially talking about the office of deacon. Again, because of our background, maybe 
not having a, a strictly biblical, biblical view of deacons, maybe deacons functioning like an elder board, or folks are concerned, understandably, because of our culture's absolute refusal to see God's unique design of men and women. But we'd say, we, remember first, deacons serve and elders lead. So the office of elder is restricted to men. Elders lead, pastors lead, pastors exercise authority in the church in a way that deacons don't. And so we believe that women can serve in the office of deacon. Now, to be really clear, we are committed complementarians, if you're familiar with that terminology. In other words, we are absolutely in our bones committed to celebrating the fact that God has uniquely wired men and women, and we refuse to capitulate to the West's rejection of that very obvious reality, that men and women are different, and men and women are gifted differently as men and women. God has made men and women plainly different, and he gifts them in accordance with their gender. Nevertheless, we see the most likely reading of these passages permitting women to serve in the office of deacon. So the problem, needs within the body were being neglected and there was potential for great conflict. The answer, deacons are given, gifted, provided by the Holy Spirit to the church to serve tables. Verse five. And I love this because you know this is of the Spirit because this is like supernatural. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolas, a proselyte of Antioch. They set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. It says that the body is satisfied with the plan that the apostles put forward, and they make their selection, these seven that are listed here. And like Luke likes to do, he drops a few important characters that are featured over the course of the next few chapters for us. He mentions Stephen. Stephen becomes really prominent at the end of chapter 6 and in chapter 7. Kind of like we saw Luke do with Barnabas. Stephen is hinted at here, who's going to play a larger role as the story proceeds. And we're introduced to Philip, who's going to play a larger role in chapter 8. The deacons are set before the apostles. They pray over them. They lay hands on them. This is symbolic of the ministry that they're receiving. And we take this process to be instructive for us. So we're, we're given the problem. The needs within the body that being neglected, the potential for great conflict, the answer, which is God's provision of deacons. And we're also given the process. This process being instructive for us as to how deacons are to be selected by the church. The process is that the body identified those qualified to serve as deacons. Now this is very much bound up with what we were saying a moment ago about their qualifications. There's certain qualifications that deacons must have in place. There's certain behaviors that they must exhibit. They've got to be a certain kind of people. So it's only fitting that we should gather evidence about their fittingness from the, the body, from the whole. The deacons need to be consistently regarded across the church. They must be known for their character. It must be apparent not just to one person, not just to a few people, but to the body more generally. And so here we see that the body selects those who make sense as deacons. The body identified those qualified to serve as deacons. And then verse 7, my favorite part about this passage. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, we're not told what it looked like for the deacons to serve. We have no idea if there were more complaints and if it necessitated more deacons. There's a lot that we're not told about this. But there is one thing that we are told, is that as a result of the institution of deacons, the word of God increased. 
These potential obstacles to the advance of the word are removed. Things that could have inhibited the advance of the gospel are addressed. And God's good wisdom and and being guided by his Holy Spirit, the word increases. The number of the disciples multiply greatly, it says. And many priests become obedient to the faith. And the result is that the word of God increased. Deacons are essential in the word increasing. Last week, we talked about the inevitable advance of God's kingdom. We said that there's no obstacle that can stand in the way of God's kingdom. We said, we, we used the image that Jesus himself uses in Matthew 13. It starts off as this tiny imperceptible seed, and it grows and it grows day after day after day. It advances and it becomes like a tree where the birds can come nest in it. And we can rest assured that there is no opposition that the kingdom of God will not break through. And in God's goodness and kindness, he gives deacons to serve that to eliminate those obstacles of physical needs that could potentially inhibit a church's health. And as I was reflecting on that, I mean, it just, it just makes sense that servants would be a crucial aspect of the kingdom advancing. It makes sense because the word that is advancing, the word about Christ is that he is a servant. Jesus himself says to his disciples that he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The message of the kingdom is that Christ, who is the king over all things, serves. In humility and in kindness and in meekness, he lays down his life willingly for his people. He sheds his blood for his people. He bears their sin in order that we could be given his life and his righteousness and we could be glorified with him. And so Christ, who is the great capital S servant, it is only fitting that he gives his church servants that that, that go about helping the kingdom to advance, the gospel to increase. Now as a church, as, as we mentioned a few times already, we get to apply this passage right now. We get to apply this passage present tense. And I was sharing with our deacons before this that it's exciting to me that we get to read, you know, what, what the church was doing so many years ago and then we get to turn around and to do, you know, precisely what they were doing. We, we get to celebrate the, the, the appointing and the deploying of deacons here in our midst. In 2021, uh, at some point in early 2021, the elders were convicted and, and sort of recognized that we were operating suboptimally. We were without deacons, and we had been without deacons for the majority of our church's life. And we realized that we needed deacons to help us to serve the body. We needed a physical needs meeting organ in the body to care for the poor in our community, to help us when folks come and ask for benevolence requests. We, need, we needed folks in our body who could, who could help handle those kind of things. But more so, we needed folks who could help us care for those who are in the household of God, our widows, our shut-ins, our sick, our bereaved, our new mothers, and our parents like to do charms who received their first foster placement this weekend. We need deacons to help lead the charge in caring for folks who are in those situations. And as I already mentioned, uh, we, we love that the, the deacons get to hit the ground running this week because they they're going to run after caring for a very specific need in our body this week. So earlier this year, we made the need for deacons known to our church at a members meeting. We asked for candidates who exhibited these characteristics, we said, who looks like 1 Timothy 3. The body submitted names. We asked those names to evaluate themselves along three criteria. One, are you willing? Two, are you able? And three, do you meet these qualifications? We interviewed those who chose to proceed. And then last Sunday at our members meeting, we voted on the following four folks. Dylan Temples, 
Sam Ferguson, Chris Bolin, and Bridget Farrell. And tonight, we get to pray over these brothers and these sisters and commission them to serve the church. And it's our prayer that the word of God, as a result of their ministry, that the word of God would increase, that the kingdom would advance through us, that the number of disciples would multiply, and we would see people become obedient to the faith because of what these, what these deacons unleash us to be able to do. In just a second, I'm going to ask those candidates to come forward, and we're going to ask them three questions to which the answer is, I do. And if you want to sing it, Is He Worthy style, Dylan, you are welcome to do that. And then much like we do with our new members, we'll ask our members to stand, and we will ask you membership a question to which you will say, I do. All right, so uh, let me offer a word of prayer, and then after I pray, candidates and elders, you can come on, come on up. Lord Jesus, we again recognize what a gift it is to be your people and to be your church. And we claim your name and we claim your blood by your mercy, not by any merit of our own doing, not based on anything that we have done. We have not made ourselves worthy. We simply have come to you, placed ourselves at your feet and asked for your pardon. And that is the very thing that qualifies us to be a part of this family. We pray tonight, Lord Jesus, as we commission these deacons, we pray that they would be received as an example to our church family. We pray for their ministry, that it would be, uh, that it would be fruitful, that our body would be loved, that our body would be cared for. I pray that our body would have um, just joy and pride in knowing that these folks represent our church. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would you bless their ministry. We do pray specifically for the Ducharms and pray that you would use these deacons to, to facilitate and, and lead the charge in our body, caring well for the Ducharms. And we pray for the many other situations uh, which will require the deacons' attention. We pray for much wisdom and much grace and for your Holy Spirit to be at work and then through that. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the gift of being the church. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.